Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fowl, Head of Content here at HET and welcome to another talk supporting digital transformation from healthcare excellence through technology. Today's talk is on the prolific digitalization of primary care in response to COVID-19, considering remote triage and consultation with a long-term view. Our panel of experts will be considering what we know about online consultation and triage and what good practice can look like. They will be sharing insights and expectations on the likely influx of patients post-COVID-19 and what needs to be put into place to be ready for this. We will also be looking at some of the potential unintended consequences of rapid uptake and what can be done to mitigate against these. Our moderator today will be HET Committee Chair, Dr. Sam Shah, who is best known for having worked on a number of high profile initiatives across healthcare in the UK. Recent roles include Global Clinical and Digital Advisor at the Department for International Trade and NHS Consultant and Director of Digital Development for NHSX. We are also very lucky to have our two esteemed panellists today who are on the forefront of this prolific digitalisation of primary care we refer to. Um, Dr. Minal Bakai, who is Deputy Director and National Clinical Lead for Digital First Primary Care at NHS, at NHS England and NHS Improvement. And Trish Greenhouch, uh, is, who is Professor of Primary Care, Health Sciences and Fellow of Green Templeton College at the University of Oxford. Some more detail in them from Sam next. But a very warm welcome to all of our speakers for taking the time out to both prep and join us today. Some housekeeping um, first, our speakers will be answering questions at the end of this discussion. So please add any and all questions you have to the Q&A function, not to the chat function. And there is opportunity to vote up questions you like and we'll get to as many as we can. I'll now pass over to Sam, thank you. Good morning, Emma, and thank you all for joining us. I'm incredibly lucky this morning to be joined by Professor Greenhall and uh, Dr. Mackay. Uh, welcome both. Uh, so, this is really the time that general practice seems to be changing. And it'd be great just to hear a little bit from both of you as to how you found the change. Professor Greenland and Trish, uh, how have you found this sudden, sudden proliferation of digitization in primary care? Well, I think we, we need to look at the digitization in the context of what else is happening. I'm, I've never been one to focus purely on the technology. And I think what we've got here is a triple novelty. We have an entirely new disease, which, you know, three months ago, there was no research on this in the published literature. And now uh, there's, um, you know, thousands of, of articles. So, so there's a new disease, which is being rapidly uh, researched and, and understood. The second thing is we've got a new form of interacting with patients, a new medium, you know, either it's uh, chat bots or it's online or it's phone or it's video. Uh, and, and that's really very new. I think the statistics are now that only 7% of consultations are happening face to face. But the third uh, novelty is new workflows and uh, new service models. So it's not just that we're, for example, uh, using uh, total triage. It's also that the whole of the workflow is different, uh, not just the fact that the patient is connecting through a technology. So, so I think that it's new disease, new technology and new uh, service models and workflows. And we need to kind of 
get our heads around all those things. We need to understand the clinical dimensions of COVID-19, particularly in the acute presentation, uh, because that's why this whole thing is happening. Um, yeah, so is that enough or do you want to keep yeah, talking? I, and I expect that like a new service model like digitization, virtual consultation, probably opens itself up to so many research questions. And, and now you're practicing as a GP, you're deputy director at NHS England, and you've been seeing this, following it, and participating for a long time. How's it been for you? Well, it's been incredible because, you know, I've been doing online and video consulting for over six years. Um, and for quite a few years, I felt like I was the, the lone voice perhaps in the room saying, try it. Um, it really, it, you know, it, it can be transformational. And suddenly, you know, it feels like our long term plan commitment of delivering digital first primary care by 2023, 2024 has been turbocharged. You know, in the last four weeks, I think we've achieved more than we have in a, in a year. Um, and that's incredible to see. But for me, I'm really proud of my colleagues in primary care because, as Trish said, this is not just about the technology. The organisational culture has changed. We've adapted um, at pace and changed the way that we organise our services. We're integrating much better with community services, with our acute trusts. Um, PCNs have really flourished those relationships, that collaboration. So moving forwards, I think it's using that technology to enhance that integrated approach uh, that we've been working towards for a really long time um, and really build on the growing confidence that I'm seeing in my colleagues uh, that we see on social media um, about actually how um, surprisingly straightforward it is to use this technology and uh, consult remotely. We're seeing you know, more than 90% of consultations now in general practice being dealt with remotely. Now, of course, COVID is, is atypical and I don't expect us to be managing 90% remotely in, in a non-COVID or post-COVID time, but um, we should definitely be able to do more remotely than we perhaps thought we could previously and I think it's then building on that and looking at how we design general practice primary care models of care to enable flexible working more resilience uh, being able to adapt um, our work um, and our, our personal lives in, in a much more um, balanced way while providing a holistic service to patients. But now, you know, the policy environment has changed a lot. If I think about when I was involved in your organisation, we had ambitions to bring about remote consultation. You're there right now in the middle of change. Um, it'd probably be helpful to hear from you a little bit about how policy is changing, and where it's going, and perhaps some of those sort of ideas that are coming out of the centre. Yes. Um, so, so, um, well, I can tell you where we are now. Perhaps that's a good place to start. So, you know, there has been amazing innovation happening in general practice. Every practice in the country has moved to remote triaging using a combination of online, telephone or video consultations. So um, over the last four weeks, uh, over 95% of practices have or are procuring an online consultation solution. So 
that is a step change from where we thought we would be pre-COVID, where we were sort of expecting about 45% of practices to have an online solution at this point in time. And um, Sam, if you wouldn't mind moving on to the next slide, almost 100% of practices um, either have or are procuring a video consultation solution. And prior to this, we had about 5% of practices having a video solution. So huge acceleration in the adoption of this technology, obviously, because there is this relative advantage now in light of COVID of doing more uh, of our work remotely. Um, but what we're also seeing is where practices have um, move to this triage first model um, being supported by the use of online consultations and so not just telephone but using combination of online and telephone consultations um, about 40 percent of uh, requests or contacts from patients are resolved through direct messaging about 50 percent through the use of a telephone call um, five to seven percent as trish mentioned um, face-to-face -face consultation and the remainder a video and that's that video number is rising significantly if you wouldn't mind going back one slide for me Sam um, so there is definitely this drive now to move towards a total triage way of working during COVID but also post-COVID to help to help us manage demand more effectively and that means that every patient is triaged first before being offered an appointment uh, to protect patients and to protect staff from the risk of infection and while lots of practices are doing this entirely by telephone and that's great online consultations helps leverage even further efficiency and benefit in this model and this is a model that we describe as total digital triage so that means that a patient will go onto their practice website go online go to the practice website and complete a structured questionnaire so not an email but a structured form that are similar questions to those that i would ask face to face in practice it elicits the patient's ideas concerns expectations so it's not just purely a transactional um, uh, encounter and it allows patients to send a photo for example of a rash if that's clinically appropriate and all of this is sent securely to the practice um, but this is done in the patient's own time at their own convenience so I don't need to be available for the patient to be able to do this and for me as a GP it saves time because the patient is providing the history in their own time. Uh, the form is saved directly into the clinical record. So I spend less time actually documenting the consultation and a detailed consultation record is saved. Um, and it means I can focus more of my time on the patient. Um, and if the patient decides to phone the practice, then practice staff will encourage them to use the online system. So some practices ask, you know, do you ever book a holiday online? Do you ever shop online as a kind of opener? Um, and then they send them a, an SMS link uh, to the practice website to be able to access the service easily. If they can't or they need some support, they encourage help from a carer or a trusted relative. Um, but if they can't um, or choose not to go online, then the reception staff will take them through that same process, but over the phone. Um, and they use the tool as a health navigation tool so to ask those questions. Um, 
And because staff are doing that, and that's a new role for, for reception staff, it's important that you either use experienced staff to do this or you train them to have those communication skills to ask those triage questions. Um, but it is vital that staff do take patients through this process and try to avoid directly booking them into an appointment um, because patients will often opt for the channel that they perceive gives them the easiest route in. Um, and by direct booking, that disincentivizes use of the online system. But it also means that as a practice, you're managing um, more complex workflows, juggling different systems. Um, but I think it's important to caveat this with you will have to have a few agreed exceptions. So your vulnerable patients, your frail elderly, where they will need to be direct booked, and that's fine. Um, but this way, whether you're a digital user or a non-digital user, you have an equitable service. Everything comes into the same workflow. And by encouraging more people who can go online to do so, you free up the phone lines for those that aren't able to. And for the practice, you've got that single workflow, uh, which is both safer and more efficient. Um, once the online consultation has been submitted, admin staff filter out the admin stuff so that doesn't come to me as a clinician. Um, they flag any urgent red flag requests to the, the on-the-day clinician um, and distribute work to the most appropriate person in the team. So you're optimizing use of your skill mix. And some of the questionnaires will help them to do this, but Reception staff have been doing this for decades, taking phone requests. So they are uh, well prepped to do this. Uh, the information is then presented to me as the clinician in a way that's quick and easy to assimilate. Uh, using the patient's clinical record, uh, I decide what to do next with four possible options for responding. Um, um, so I can respond through the online message, a telephone call, a video call, um, or of course arrange a face-to-face -face appointment, but flow the patient into the right care setting, particularly um, in light of COVID. That's, that's incredibly important. And what we found is that patients do like the system because they feel like they're getting a direct line to the, the GP and avoiding that gatekeeping role that reception have they've traditionally been perceived to have. Um, and but, but for it to work, patients need to trust the system. They need to feel like it's secure um, and uh, private. Uh, but, but if you can do that through, you know, the way that you talk, talk, talk to them about it, the way that you promote it, then patients will use it. And there is no indication from the research to date that marginalised groups fare any worse where online consultations are being used routinely in practice. That's really helpful now. And I know you've got some... Uh, resources that you want to point people towards. Um, it's probably just helpful to summarise uh, what they what they are and how they will help them in setting up their service. Yes, yes. So um, I'm sure the slides will be shared at the end of this, but uh, we've we've pr produced some guidance around you know how you do this in practice, uh, e-learning resources, um, and for. Uh, any commissioners that don't have a system or practices that don't have an online or video consultation solution there's an email address for the national commercial procurement hub that are handling um, the procurement of these solutions so you can get a solution in, a, in about two days it's a rapid turnaround thank you yeah and that's really interesting because and I particularly like the idea of total digital and this area is evolving so quickly. I imagine the research can't keep up and it's hard to produce best practice. Trish, if I could ask you, 
What do you think the key learning is around best practice? And what does good look like for video consultations, especially for all our clinical colleagues out there? Trish, may I ask you to unmute, please? I do beg your pardon, sorry about that. Okay, I'll start again. Uh, first thing to say is there's been a huge amount of research on video consultations. Um, they've been going for about 20 years. And as you can imagine, the 20 years ago, the technology was absolutely dreadful. Uh, and as the, the tech has improved, uh, so the research has uh, become more positive towards this as, a, as something that might actually really be uh, implementable in, in the real world. Um, having said that, that large body of research, uh, most of it's been done in hospital settings uh, and there's very limited research on the use of video consultations in the acute epidemic or pandemic situation and also limited research in general practice settings. Um, the other thing to say is that most of the research literature consists mainly of underpowered randomized controlled trials on highly selected populations who are not acutely ill. Now in those trials, the video uh, medium, you can imagine people are randomized to either carrying on as usual or, or having a video consultation for their diabetes or their depression or their hypertension, etc. And in those trials, the video arm of the trial uh, would uh, be associated with high patient satisfaction, high staff satisfaction, very similar clinical outcomes, and sometimes uh, cost savings, sometimes these consultations are a bit quicker, that kind of thing. Uh, but actually, you can imagine what the publication bias is like there. Uh, importantly, those studies didn't turn up any uh, unforeseen harms, you know, nobody dropped dead. But it's important to remember that the relevance of that research to the current COVID outbreak is very limited, because of course, what we've got here is the diametric opposite to the population in which those studies were done. We've got people who are unwell, if, they, if they're suffering from COVID. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around what's happening. It's not a chronic condition, of course, or at least we hope it's not. Uh, so, so really, the, the drawing parallels with that research literature and what's going on at the moment uh, is, is difficult. Now, let's just look at some other research. The qualitative literature, I think, is very interesting. I'm a qualitative researcher, actually. I've done a few randomized trials, but it's not quite my thing. Uh, qualitative literature is very interesting because uh, that's the literature which looks at the challenges of implementation, the, the, the headaches that people are going through, trying to think what's the right technology, how do we implement it, how do we get the staff on board, how do we get the patients on board, this is, this is difficult stuff, but, but the one little soundbite I want to throw out in, in, in this webinar is to say, introducing video in particular, but in, you know, any technological, uh, to the technologically based uh, service, uh, involves major changes to organizational roles, routines, processes. And these initiatives tend to be much more successful if we take a mindset of quality improvement to say this is a quality improvement project with the aid of technology rather than say we're implementing a technology now that may not sound like a very important difference but it really is so another kind of qualitative research that i think is very relevant is research where we actually video the patient's end of the consultation and the doctor's end or the nurse's end 
and we've done a lot of that we've we've i think probably i would say some of my postdocs have led the field here they're very good at, at detailed analysis of two channels of videos one with the doctor one with the patient and the first thing that that kind of research has shown is that dependability is important. It's no good if the video keeps cutting out. You know, you really do have to have a dependable connection. But, you know, all hats off to the tech companies. I think we've got some very good technologies now. Uh, Accurex, uh, you know, attend anywhere. There's, there's all sorts. I don't want to name any. I don't have shares in any. Uh, but they're, they're pretty good. Uh, you need a good technical connection. If you don't have a good technical connection, you get something called lag. And lag means that it seems like you're interrupting the patient, but you're not really, because when, when the patient's finished talking, you start talking, but because of the lag, the patient thinks you're talking over them, that kind of thing. And that can make everybody very grumpy, as you can imagine, you know, when sometimes it happens when you Skype your relatives and it, it just makes for very awkward uh, con conversations. But let's assume the technical connection is high quality, that you've, you haven't got much in the way of lag, uh, what we've demonstrated is that the actual meat of the consultation, once you're set up, happens in very much the same way as in a face-to-face -face consultation. Um, and what's more, that minor technical breakdowns don't matter. So, for example, difficulty getting set up at the beginning, like when you told me that I hadn't muted my mic. Actually, once you've cleared all that out and once you've made the connection, uh, it doesn't appear to uh, damage the quality of the consultation. It doesn't disrupt the clinical interaction. There's just as much trust, just as much patient-centeredness, all that kind of thing. But as I said, major breakdowns do disrupt the ethos of the, con uh, of the consultation, the quality, and both clinicians and patients then experience them as what they call unprofessional. We had one... Uh, one uh, person we interviewed said we've created a new form of professional shame where we feel deeply ashamed that the connection was so bad we couldn't we couldn't hear what the patient was saying that kind of thing um nearly finished that i just wanted to talk a little bit about physical examination by video and this may be something that people want to ask questions about um it is actually possible but it's not very easy to undertake a limited physical examination. I mean, Minal and I were talking before we went live about examining breast lumps. Of course you can't do that, but you'd have to take the patient's word for it uh, if they found the lump. Um, I was talking yesterday with a group of people saying, well, how do you listen to the patient's heart? You know, can you kind of do something with their iPhone? No, you can't. Uh, but there are things you can do. You can most importantly, you can look at their face, you can eyeball the patient, and the patient who is distressed, who is obviously making a lot of respiratory effort at rest, uh, who looks exhausted, who's lying in bed, all those kind of eyeball things that make you realize this patient is extremely sick, they are important. Uh, apparently something like 50% of patients now have blood pressure monitoring equipment in the home. That was an estimate from the Scots, I think. But, uh, you know, somebody in the family may have a BP machine, which is quite good. Uh, someone might know how to use it. I would say that if you're asking the patient to take their blood pressure remotely, um, it's a good idea for you to have a blood pressure machine at your end. Uh, and then if they put it on upside down, instead of just saying to them, look, you've got it on upside down, actually put it on your own arm and say, now I need you to take it off, flip it around like this. And so you're modeling it by video. 
Um, the other thing we've shown with physical examination is that the patient, uh, if they're not used to the technology, um, you have to tell them what you can see. And so, for example, we did some work with patients with heart failure, showing the nurses their ankle edema. And of course, you have to say to them, well, you need to turn your tablet a bit further towards your leg or, you know, a bit further away, because at the moment I can only see the floor. That kind of uh, explaining because it's hard enough for the patient to um, be trying to show you their um, ankle or whatever part of the body it is, uh, but they've also got to imagine what you see. And so you may have to do a running commentary and think aloud and, and, and say, you know, just talk them through it. Um, I suppose that's quite a lot of research evidence. None of it is directly relevant to COVID, but I think it's, um, it's getting there. I suppose the other thing to say is that we are now doing a big piece of research to develop an early warning score that can be used remotely. It's going to be called remote COVID assessment in primary care, and it includes uh, things that you can measure by uh, video. So things like uh, respiratory rate, um, you know, temperature, hoping that the patient's got a, a thermometer it, it, at home, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and we're hoping to get that out into general practice in, in, say, three weeks' time, something like that. That's really fascinating because many of the online consultation providers and video consultation providers have lots of claims about how their product and service is the best and their adjunct products and often have devices that they might be connecting and also recommending to their users. What does this mean from a policy point of view? And is this something that the NHS should be moving towards? And what are the opportunities and challenges in using these tools that might be out there? Yeah, so I don't know exactly what tools you're referring to, but one of the research findings that is highly consistent across sectors, uh, you know, and, and has been shown for more than 50 years is that the simpler an innovation, the more likely it is to be taken up. And the way to reduce uptake and reduce spread and scale up and pace uh, is to make it more complex. Now, I've studied an awful lot of technologies with um, bells and whistles that seem to do absolutely everything. We all know this when we buy something. I bought a new sewing machine the other day and there's about 50 different functions on it. And I know I'm not gonna use any of them. Um, you know, so, and actually, it puts you off. If it was if it was simpler, you'd you'd be more likely to use it. I just took one look at that sewing machine, thought I haven't got time around <laughs> it. Now, I think we need to distinguish between the must-haves and the nice-to-haves. The must-haves are um, a an internet connection, a secure video connection, and a decent audio. The rest are bells and whistles which may actually put people off. I'll give you an example. One of the things that we've found in our research is that if the patient has to download, um, you know, a, an app, a cookie, uh, something that they have to install, that actually puts about two thirds of them off. So, you know, when we're doing Zoom, you have to download the Zoom um, cookie, whatever it is. Uh, there's a few that just have a web link. And that's so much easier. And the reason is, it's just a little hurdle. Um, the other reason for not having all these uh, extra bells and whistles is the computing environment of an NHS organization may not allow you to download that little cookie that's necessary. 
And, and that's really important about the friction of the user. You know, if, if we make it easier for the user, they're perhaps more likely to use it. And now from a policy point of view, you know, what do you see as the opportunities in making it easier for citizens to get access sort of thing? But what do you also think are the, perhaps some of the unintended consequences of these kind of programs and introducing this technology into the environment? Yes, I think that's, that's a really good question. So if I go to the second bit first, um, I think one of the real positives uh, from this crisis is that we've seen some IT providers really step up and build what's needed to support practices. So that real co-design piece, you know, we, we are, we've got technology that, that meets a need. We're not just trying to retrofit a piece of technology into general practice. So I think that's really key. And I think that ethos that suppliers have shown is something we would really like to, to galvanize. But I think also um, what we've seen is that where there've been traditionally traditionally lots of barriers to you know, integration, for example, um, a, a, a really good example was that we you, we have virtual hubs that do online consultations, but they could never prescribe from those hubs. And suddenly, in, in two weeks, we managed to get that functionality through that had taken a couple of years previously. So um, there has been an acceleration in that kind of design that works for users, so they can work like they're working on the ground. Um, but the challenge is that you may have lots of solutions now in the market some may have contracts with providers some may not um, and that can introduce some risk so we have national frameworks so we have two frameworks the dynamic purchasing system for online consultation and video solutions and also the gpit futures framework and, and both of these frameworks um, ha have a key or essential standards that suppliers need to meet to get onto those frameworks so that practices and commissioners can be assured that they're secure, that they're safe, uh, um, that the information governance regs are, are um, they're compliant with those things. But it also means that there is supplier management because what we might be using now might be great for the short term and for the crisis, but actually on a, a long-term, more strategic view of this, they may not they may not be fit for purpose or you may want a different type of solution, a solution that does integrate with say pharmacy and mental health and the wider health system. So we need to have these suppliers on frameworks. We can ensure that they start to evolve their product as the needs of the system evolve outside of COVID. So I think that's one key thing. The other thing is that we are rapidly implementing these solutions and as Trish said this is service improvement this is not just implementing technology and traditionally practices would take six to 18 months to embed these and they're doing this in a couple of weeks so there is risk in doing that rapidly so centrally we've produced um, guidance on how to do this but also um, some of that safety risk um, the IG risk we've produced templates that uh, quite clearly uh, set out where the hazards could be and how you would like how perhaps you might want to think about mitigating them um, with regards to the way that you implement the product so that they're done in a safe way so taking what was traditionally done at a very local level up to, to reduce that burden so it can be done at pace but it's also done robustly and also we've we've set up a nationally coordinated implementation support offer because 
one of the greatest challenges of this is having the capacity to do the change. It's, it's not easy. And uh, particularly at the moment where practices are juggling, I've got multiple competing priorities. The more hands-on support boots on the ground type of um, support we can give them, the better. So we're working with regional colleagues, uh, with systems, with commissioners, and bringing together or aligning resources, so AHSNs, CSUs, CCGs, um, central implementation expertise, to really go out and form these blended teams that support practices that are ready to move to a total digital triage approach to then go about and actually do it and take all this critical success factors, all the lessons learned from the years that this program's been running, but from the research that Trish has described, but giving it to them at a point in time where it's relevant and they can absorb it. Um, I think finally, it's probably really important to say that we are taking a huge leap in data. So previously, perhaps we were, we, we, we often monitored, you know, who has what or activity data, but, but not outcome data. And so we're really looking at that outcome piece, you know, what's adding value? Where are the risks? What are the safety issues? How many incidents are we getting? all of that to really help have a, a data-driven learning culture-based approach to continually improve those services in real time, but also find out where do we need to dedicate resource? Where are the areas that are struggling the most? Who's you know, using this for more than 50% of their patients and who's using this for less than 10%? And then being much more strategic in how we support people. And I think that's been a, a big step change in what we are trying to do in terms of mitigating risk when we're doing this rapidly. I suppose the second, the first bit of your question about how do we make these solutions more accessible? So I think it comes back to that usability piece, suppliers really working and co-designing these solutions with practitioners and with patients, testing them, piloting them, um, and again, using the data of you know, who's dropping off, where are they dropping off, feedback from patients and being much more responsive um, as a system. I'm really heartened to hear that you're really focusing on the data and the outcomes because historically I've been presented with so many uh, loose evaluations or very underpowered studies to justify the existence of some of these things. Trisha, I'd be really interested in your take on this and how we put in a longer term evaluation framework to both assess the effectiveness and the safety of many of these products that are emerging every day. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I, was, I was fascinated with what Minna was saying there because, of course, we are, um, like everybody else, doing this very much on the hoof. You know, we've done the evaluation of the, of the kind of normal humdrum day-to-day, -day, everybody being really slow and incrementally going from half a percent to one percent of people using this. And suddenly, you know, we've got, oh, my goodness, 93 percent of consultations. This really is transformation at pace and scale. Uh, and we've just put in uh, a bid to UKRI to look at transformation at pace and scale. Now, how do you do that? Uh, well, look, a sound bite on evaluation. 
The problem is we've got a moving baseline. We've got a hugely complex system and anybody who's trying to do something rigidly to a logic model, it, it's coming up against all sorts of realities that they hadn't thought of when they dreamt up the, the original plan. So we're having to amend our plans on the hoof. Uh, and that's good because that's what you have to do in, in complex systems. Now, uh, I would say, Broadly speaking, we have to keep two things in mind. The first thing is the kind of logic model evaluation that you would be implementing whatever you were changing. I remember the first thing I ever did when I became a GP, this is 30 years ago, I set up a diabetic clinic. And so I said, well, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to measure how many people come to the clinic and I'm going to measure their HbA1c and I'm going to measure, you know, that kind of thing. So you'd have some, some, some process measures, some outcome measures, and you'd follow that through and you'd predefine certain data you collect and all that kind of thing. And some of it's about attendance and some of it's about clinical outcomes. You still have to do that, but the problem uh, with the complex system approach is the best laid plans of mice and men are, you know, maybe just get thrown up in the air because of everything that's happening. We suddenly get a policy directive. You can't do it like that. So the other thing you need as well as what I call your logic model evaluation is a narrative evaluation. You need the story of what happened and why. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be just a, a kind of stream of consciousness. You also need to illustrate your story. You need some quantitative data, for example. But it's the narrative of what went, went on. So I would say start whatever you're, you're setting up and everybody listening is going to be doing something slightly differently. This is what we need to evaluate. You know, if you're in a, a major COVID hotspot, then that's going to be your thing. If you're not, then maybe one of the things you're most interested in is your chronic disease management and keeping the show on the road, but in a virtual way, whatever it is, you need your metrics uh, and you need, you, you know, what kind of things you're collecting. Can you, do you trust the data? How can you improve the data quality? All that kind of thing. How can you aggregate it? Um, but then you also need to, I would say keep a diary, make a note, uh, you know, get yourself an exercise book and start writing stuff in or open a Word document or whatever uh, and follow that narrative uh, over the next few weeks. Jot down what kind of things are influencing the decision making, uh, why you had to do something differently from what you planned. Another thing to do, actually, is to get one of those lever arch files. Everyone's got one lying around in the surgery. I used to find them all over the place and just put stuff in it. So there may be, for example, you know, things that come through the post, things that you print off. Uh, this is relevant to the story of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and, and literally just chuck them in, you're in a busy clinic, but then at some point when you're writing up your evaluation, you'll go back and you'll find these little, you know, printouts of emails or whatever it might be. Uh, and you'll be able to put the story together. The other thing that helps is to have someone interview you. So we are doing interviews uh, of people who are going through this change at pace and scale. And we're just saying, tell us the story. And, and that process of telling another person about it allows you to capture some of the complexities of the rapidly unfolding situation. So is that enough? Um... That's, that's really helpful, especially about the complexity, because we're in a world at the moment where we're moving from what was distinction between primary care and secondary care to a very integrated care space. And if I, Minal, pass one of the questions to you, which is, you know, how do we use this to link what would have been perhaps the first visit to a clinic 
could we connect up primary care, tertiary care by using the technology? Is this an option that could now evolve? Yes, absolutely. And actually, pre-COVID, uh, we had a, a we have a program. It's been slightly paused, but uh, our digital first accelerators, and that's exactly what they were doing. So they were looking at how do we use technology to redesign pathways across a health system, so a system by default type approach. Um, and so, you know, some of those uh, programs were looking at. Uh, combining uh, 111 online, Sam, <laughs> your baby, um, with online consultations. So as a patient, I don't often know whether my problem is urgent or routine, um, but we're often expecting patients to make some of those decisions. And then what happens is that the front door, the, the way you enter the system often dictates the outcome, which seems um, slightly bizarre. So what we were trying to do was to to bring those together. So, for an example, combining urgent and primary care, you would use 111, you'd go through the, the algorithm that 111 surfaced, and if, if at that point the disposition from 111 was you need general practice, it would seamlessly link in with your practice's online consultation solution. And that solution would then only surface questions that you hadn't been asked through 111. And often those questions are more primary care relevant or focused because they've been built for primary care. And then that online consultation would come in, as I described earlier, through that total digital triage model into the practice for it to be triaged at a practice level uh, and practices then have the choice and the flexibility as well as the patient having the choice and flexibility in which way to then interact and have that response delivered and we were doing similar with pharmacy with musculoskeletal services so trying to bring all of these different parts of primary care together at a system level and connect them so for the patient regardless of how they enter the system the outcomes were consistent and it's about getting patients to be able to access the right service for their right needs at the right time with the right level of urgency with the right person um, and therefore have a much better experience because what we know traditionally is that patients just bounce around often have to duplicate the work you know they're repeating their history over and over and it's it's not a, it's not a great experience for them and and potentially that can lead to safety issues like a delay in care um, because they just don't know how to access the service. We just need to make that simpler and technology can help us do that. And it can also give us the flexibility and the choice to, to, to work with patients and respond to them in a way that meets their needs. If I think about that entire service design exercise last year, the NHS England and NHS Digital undertook, it really described that complexity, that bounce through the system where patients bounce from urgent care to primary care and back and forth. And some interesting things came out of that. One area, Manel, that came out of it was getting hold of things like sick notes. In the new world of video consultation and online consultation, what's your view on how sick notes could be provided for in this environment? Yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, COVID has brought suddenly, we are able not, I mean, we've always been able to do sick notes electronically, so create that electronic sick note in primary care. But now using um, some of the solutions that we have, we can attach that to a text message, there's a code that the patient receives, and then they can securely download that, that fit note 
and then present it to their employer as they need it. And, you know, similarly, we could use that ability to enhance or improve the efficiency of the way that we communicate, not just with patients, but with also, you know, uh, the acutes, uh, referrals, um, you know, we've been doing uh, referral letters and texting them to um, the, uh, our secondary care colleagues through, you know, a secure text messaging service where they have a code and they download it. So I think there's loads of innovation here. And I think part of it will be post-COVID, what do we want to keep? What's really valuable to practitioners? And I think just going back briefly to um, you know Trisha's um, response around evaluation one of the things that we did pre-COVID was we went out and asked patients and clinicians frontline staff you know what would be important for them to have measured in terms of outcomes you know what is it that they need to know to improve their services when they're doing this day in day out and we've got about 600 responses and we've got a list of you know the top 10 things that both clinicians um, that matter to both clinicians and, and patients and I think it's you know built you know rather than reinventing the wheel it would it, it would be great if you know when people are doing these evaluations they can that they're measuring things that really matter to the people that we you know that that matter and that system. type of study that research around what's actually happening is of course incredibly important and Trisha I might just turn to you because you've got two excellent questions from Ijoma and, and one of them was about how, what are the best ways in which we can assess trust and compassion that are being achieved from virtual consultation? And I'll paraphrase that to video consultation. And are there any ideas that you have around this? Oh, it's a really interesting one. Um, I think certainly we used some techniques to use, uh, to look at patient-centeredness, to look at shared decision-making. Um, I think there are ways of looking at it, but I would say that it isn't any different doing that in the virtual environment to, the, to what, how you would do it face to face. So when I was back in clinical practice, I, you know, for my annual appraisal one year, I used a, I can't remember what the um, instrument was, but it was just, you gave it out to 50 patients. And one of the questions was, to what extent did you trust the doctor? To what extent... You know, I mean, ask the patients. It's like, you know, when, when your kids go to school, they tell you who the good teachers are. Um, I, I don't think there's any great um, mystery about this. So, you know, it, it, it's um, the extent to which the doctor listens to, to you, the extent to which you felt um, taken seriously, all those kind of things. There are instruments out there. Uh, and I think uh, whoever asks the question, they're on to something because it's really, really important to make sure we don't lose that, the core values of general practice. I have to go very soon to another webinar. I'm supposed to be on it at quarter to 12, um, but I'll answer one more question if you've got one for me. Trisha, one more for you. Uh, with the role of video consultation, do you think the model of practice is going to now fundamentally change? Um, Quite possibly. I think for we've, we've got the kit now, you know, almost every general practice in the country now has the, not just the technical kit, but also the skill mix. Uh, you know, people have really gone up the learning curve very, very quickly for a very good reason, because COVID's so horrible, nobody wants to be in the same room as anybody else. Um, and we, we won't unlearn that, you know, it will be a bit like riding a bike. I think the other thing is that for certain things, um, it, 
with, I'll give you an example. I've got a friend who's a professor uh, in secondary care and uh, she sent me an email the other day. She said, I've just had my six monthly lipid clinic appointment for my cholesterol. Um, and, and she said, uh, I went for a blood test, obviously, and then I just got a phone call from the, from the consultant. And I don't know why I ever bothered to go for a face-to-face -face appointment. You know, I'm perfectly well on my statin. I didn't need to go. Now, I cannot imagine that she is going to agree to go back, try and find a parking space, spend all morning sitting in a waiting room rather than just get a phone call. You know, there are some really obvious things where we were double handling, we were wasting people's time we were wasting car park space on the other hand um when you've got someone who lives around the corner from the surgery and they've got a small child and they want to pop round and get the baby weighed or you know whatever it might be meet other mums while they're in the waiting room i think there's lots of things that we will be going back to because there are real advantages to the face-to-face -face, uh, environment. It's like we can all Zoom each other, but wouldn't it be nice to go out for a meal with some friends, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's gonna be a bit of both. Well, well, Trisha, thank you very much for, for joining us and thanks for staying a little bit longer to answer those questions. Very yeah, much appreciate it. I'm leaving before the end. I've just got a whole load of these webinars lined up. Um, good luck, everybody. And you're doing a great job at the front line of the NHS. Thank you. So Minal, we've obviously got we've got uh, hundreds of questions, both online and sent in advance, and from the uh, Zoom chat. I'm going to pick a few here that I think you will that you'll I'm sure undoubtedly be able to help us uh, deal with. A couple of questions are emerging, both on the chat and the Q and A, around recording a video consultation. And I guess uh, in urgent care and out of hours care, they've been recording telephone calls for a very long time. Of course, there might be good reasons around why this might not be the same in this environment. Uh, what's, what can you share around video consultation and recording? Yes, so, uh, so I guess there are two sides to this. There's the patient recording the video consultation and then there's um, the clinician recording the video consultation. So um, I think it's important at the start of um, a video consultation to first of all just um, confirm whether the consultation is being audio or video recorded. I think as a practitioner, um, the default is not to do a live recording, so not to audio or, or video record the consultation unless there is a, a specific reason why that needs to happen. And if you're going to, you need to have explicit consent from the patient um, and then you also need to be very clear about when the recording is starting and when it's stopping I think um, you know from the patient's perspective again you, you would want to ask and check but of course patients can record their their video consultation and some find it very useful from a from a, a kind of clinical perspective because they can refer back to it remember what the clinician told them what instructions they were given but you as the clinician need to be aware that that is a possibility when you're consulting with that patient um, I suppose you know that kind of leads on to consent um, because uh, traditionally we would never have and particularly I'm thinking around intimate examinations that's something I get asked about quite a lot you know it, what if you need to proceed with an examination that the patient is likely to perceive to be intimate um, but you need to do it through a video 
because that's not something we've conventionally done before. Um, and so, you know, I would just start off by saying you need to follow the, the, the key principles that have been set out in, you know, the GMC guidance, what you would do face to face with regards to an intimate examination and chaperones and be aware of the limitations um, that a, a video link has with regards to this. Um, but also, if an examination is sensitive, then you need to think about the setting. Um, in which it's being undertaken so you may wish for the patient to relocate to another room if there are other people in the vicinity but equally it's important there's privacy at the practitioner side as well so nobody's able to view or overhear the call if you have an interpreter for example involved in the call you may uh, need to ask them to switch off the video and just have the audio available just to, to help you with the interpretation side of things. And of course, um, you know, with the consent of the patient, you may have a chaperone at the pr practitioner's end um, that witnesses the nature and extent of the examination that's undertaken. Again, you need to have explicit consent for that. And um, but patients equally can have somebody at their end, but you need to record all of that. But if you as a clinician, um, you know, need a chaperone, that needs to be somebody that's impartial, so not a relative or friend of the patient, somebody that's trained to, to do that. So all this usual stuff you would expect to do in face-to-face. -face. That's really interesting because there's a lot there to think about that people may unconsciously deal with in their day-to-day -day routine practice, but certainly online have to make a more conscious effort to deal with this. Nicola's got a really interesting question out there, and that's around, do you now think that education and training will have to change? And for example, do you think this has to modify the way that GPVTS schemes and other things have to evolve? And what's your, what's, what's your suggestion on this? I think yes, um, because, you know, these are new skills. So, uh, you know, we are seeing, well, I don't expect us to be doing 90% remotely, but I do expect us to be doing quite a lot more remotely. So if, as an example, pre-COVID practices that had chosen to take on a total digital triage approach we're managing about two-thirds of their work remotely and a third face-to-face -face. So I think first of all it's really important that clinicians maintain both a mix of face-to-face -face and a mix of uh, remote consultations because what you do also start to see is when you're just doing remote consultations clinicians are human beings and everybody values that face-to-face -face interaction and it can become quite frustrating and it's not the technology that's frustrating but you know losing that ability to, to sit you know um, to be in the presence of another human is, is you, you, you can't put a price on that so I think it's important to maintain both but um, I, I would say particularly with online consulting so more so than even video because you can't see or speak to the patient there are some you know skills that you need to develop in being able to do that well because the evidence does show that you can maintain the doctor-patient relationship through online consulting but it's different to what we normally do. So just as an example, you need to have some very clear rules of engagement. So concerns that patients often describe when they are asked to do an online consultation is, what do I write? How much information should I share? Who's going to see this information? Will it still feel personal to them as a consultation? And so um, as a practice and as a clinician, you need to support patients by being clear about what happens behind the scenes, so to speak, after a request is submitted. So who's going to see it? Where does it go? What should they expect? 
allow patients to address their requests to a specific clinician or show the rotor of clinicians that are available that day so they can ex ex uh, address their request to a specific person. Provide clear instructions, for example, on the website, you know, how do I use the system? What is the response time that I should be expecting? What do I do in an emergency? If I have an urgent query outside of practice hours, what do I do? So to avoid that miscommunication. And I think also really important to acknowledge when patients have used it, provided a useful and detailed history, because that builds confidence in how much information they need to provide. And what we know from today, you know, just from experience is that providing a prompt response, so within a few hours rather than end of the next working day to a clinical query, so not administrative, but clinical particularly, um, and this may be simply just letting people know that it's, it's been received, a clinician's looking at it, it's being actioned, helps um, improve satisfaction and experience, but also stops the patient calling up the practice, chasing what's happened to it, uh, submitting another request, or then just trying to bypass the system because patients are very good at bypassing systems. And I think just very quickly, just a couple of really other important things on that. Continuity is, is really key. So these systems can really help you enhance continuity because you, they afford you flexibility. You can you basically start working off a work list rather than booked appointments. So you can customize appointment lengths, you can do them from home, you can do them from the clinic, you can do them from another site. And online consultations in particular have been shown to work best as part of that ongoing clinician-patient relationship. So allow requests to from specific patients to go to specific GPs or use the personal list system um, across the board. And in terms of how do you actually maintain that relationship in the way that you write, because that is often the worry, that you lose the face-to-face -face element, you lose the patient-clinician relationship. And, and as I said, the evidence doesn't show that, but the way you do that is um, by writing in a way that you would normally speak. So don't try and, you know, um, uh, compose the perfect message that's that's less important you know have a greeting have a sign off um, avoid long essays be very clear with your message you often have to be quite explicit with concerns and your rationale because you lose the other cues um, be personal acknowledge um, emotions and be empathic you know think about imagine you're in the room when you're delivering that message and you can pick up a lot of cues from the language that's used so you know be in tune to that and if you are worried that there's a misunderstanding just pick up the phone because that again will help build confidence and trust in using the system that's incredibly helpful and some amazing tips there as to what people can do when they're in this practical environment in such a changing space now general practice has something like 340 plus million consultations each year and right now so many of them are taking place virtually more so than any other part of the health system right now you're in an almost privileged position having both delivered and run this program but also the experience that exists across general practice what would your message be to other colleagues in other parts of primary care in pharmacy dentistry and even other areas like secondary care, where they're not as far advanced in their model of virtual consultation, what would your key messages be to them when starting out? Yeah, um, so 
it's, it's, yeah, no, it's a good question. So I think, you know, the way we've done it in general practice is it, you need quite a systematic approach. So you start off by planning. So, you know, have a working group, not a huge group, a small group that are going to lead the change for you. Um, you need to empower your champions. That working group should have a clinical lead, but then don't have every single decision, particularly in general practice, have it to be ratified by the partners because you just won't move forwards. It's that cultural piece of involving your whole team in redesigning the processes, understanding why you're doing it, getting that buy-in um, to drive this forwards. Um, and, you know, as Trish said, you've got to take the mindset that this is an iterative process. You're not going to get it perfect. You're going to have to adapt it. You're going to have to learn. You're going to have to change. It's not about success or failure. And when you start taking that on board, then you can actually embrace and maybe even enjoy some of that change. And what we find is that working then as a team really brings you together, helps motivate the team to, to drive that change. I think other really useful things that we've learned from general practice are that your um, capacity and demand. So we produced quite a simple tool on Excel where practices can look to see whether there are any uh, capacity and demand mismatches. So what we know is that most online consultations come in on a Monday and Tuesday. So a third come in on a Monday between 10 and two, uh, between eight and two. But our capacity is not, is, um, you know, split across the week and it's not necessarily focused on area at the times where we've got the highest demand. So if you can juggle your sessions around to match where you're getting the most number of requests, that really helps take the pressure off because one of the problems that practices do find is that uh, particularly initially, and this is a big worry, and I'm sure it's been raised in the questions, is do you just op open the floodgates? Do you just open the floodgates and you're going to get overwhelmed, drowned in online consultation requests? And the answer is no. But what does happen is that everybody has unmet demand and that unmet demand is in the realms of about 20%. So what will happen is you will get increased demand coming in but that's your unmet demand but what we also know is that about 40 percent of what sits in front of me as a gp doesn't need me as a gp it either doesn't need general practice at all it needs another person in the team um, or it needs a different service and so using that total triage approach with online consultations works really well because you can then direct people to the right place and right service and then suddenly, if you've moved some of that 40% around, you've got enough capacity to manage that 20% unmet need as you see fit. Um, and that helps build resilience, particularly at a practice level. But if you suddenly put a cap on it and work keeps spilling over to the next day, to the next day, you end up in this vicious cycle of people calling up, them not getting a response, and then practice feeling really pressured so often practices will bring in a bit of extra clinical capacity in the first couple of weeks for them just to manage some of that unmet demand as they transition across to the new service but what we also know is that demand is pretty predictable um, and so you can use that that um, that kind of capacity demand capacity tool to really help you design what you do going forwards but planning I would say is the key thing and then from there um, you know you can redesign your workflows 
um, you can make sure you've got all the equipment that you need, that the IT is working, that logins are working, that you've had the training, that you take staff through the whole process end to end so everyone's very clear about their roles and their responsibilities um, and have peers. So using that peer-to-peer -peer learning, you've often got one person in the practice who's really quite savvy and good at, good at some of that tech um, and then they that's really powerful because they then teach everybody else and bring them along that journey. So really having those champions is essential. That is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone has learned so much from both yourself and Trish today. This is clearly a rapidly evolving space, but one that I'm sure is not going to stop and I'm sure it will continue to develop. So you'll be looking out for your next instalment. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing so very much with us. It's been a real pleasure. I'm going to hand back over to Emma now, who is just going to wrap up. Thank you, Manel. Yeah, thank you, Sam. So, yeah, just to reiterate that, thank you very much to all of our speakers today for joining us and um, delivering this much-needed discussion and prepping. Um, for those listening live, this and upcoming talks are available on the HEP podcast, um, so please do subscribe to keep up to date on the latest in health digital innovation. Our next talk will be on the evolution of the digitally powered patient uh, with insights from NHS Digital, Orca, UK Cloud, M Habitat, the Good Thing Foundation and, and likely more. Um, so thank you everyone for your attention today and stay safe and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.